Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, September 13th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 15, verses 1 to 33. In today's text, the Lord teaches his people about purity and impurity in the cases of bodily discharges. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hull, Brother Apple, it is always a pleasure, and I, I love your background. They're like, mine's just a wall, but yours are empty bookshelves. You're you're so above and beyond all of us, you don't even need books anymore. You know, it's it's like, it's a nice muscle move. I like it. The, the books are on other bookshelves. So I, I see I, how it is. Like every guy, you know, it's like he's got all the books, it's like Luther's works there and Chemnitz and uh, the anti and post Nicene fathers. And um, I got that wrong for the longest time. I kept saying anti fathers. So I thought, oh, these are the heretic books. And I was wrong. And I was corrected, and that felt really nice to be corrected in class about that. And, um, but no, so good stuff. Glad to have you with us today, Pastor Hall. We're talking about the book of Leviticus. So talk oh, to yeah. us a little bit about this book, context within it, that'll help us with chapter 15 today. Well, I mean, even the name, right? And I'm sure this has been talked about already. I know it has, is, is God calls, right? God calls his people. And that's really what this book is, is, is we always— associated with legalism and things like this. But really, this is a book about God calling his people into a holy life, into a holy relationship with him. And you've seen all these different ways that God's people aren't holy, and how do they become holy? How do you see the different types of sacrifice, the the public sacrifices, the individual sacrifices, the sacrifices the priests make, how they make them? And, and now you're getting into more of the, the daily living, things that happen in your daily life. We've already seen the, the leprosy and things like that. And now you get into the discharges. And there's always connections there, like uh, the liver. Why would God tell the people, don't, you know, make sure you burn the liver up, burn these certain things? Well, these were used for enchantments and witchcraft. So God didn't want these things for his people. He wants them removed. So even in our text today on, on discharges, it's that connection yet again with how is the body used? God cares about how our body is used in our life with our neighbor, specifically our spouse, and then life under his grace. Well, I'm glad you brought up the part about particular animal parts that were involved in sacrifices and the reason that you didn't do certain things with those or you didn't use those in certain ways. Because I think that's going to be an important connection here as to why God cares about bodily discharges, and particularly the ones in terms of the sexual relationship between a husband and his wife, between a man and a woman, and the ways that those would have been made use of in pagan religions. So the Lord has something to say about them here, at least in part, so that they don't get misused 
according to a pagan religion, but are used, as, as you said, according to his holiness. Exactly. And that's the main thing. It's like he's, and God still does this for us. Um, at Zion, I consume all the elements afterwards, After, at, not at the end of the service, but once distribution is done. Now, you don't have to do that. That's not a law. But it's also, it's making sure that what this is, Christ's body and blood, is used for the reasons it's given. Um, it's not abused. It's not thrown away in the trash. It's not taken home and put in your garden so you'll have the best beets come August or something, you know. It's used for the way God has given it. And it's the same with our body. God gives you a body to be used for a specific purpose in specific ways. And the rest of the world corrupts that, and God's protecting us from that. Yeah. So, I mean, and in, in, in the terms of what the pagan religions around the people of Israel and the Promised Land, what they would have been doing with their sexuality, is those acts of sexuality would have been made use of within pagan worship as a part of fertility cults. And so the Lord says, no, those things are not going to happen in my tabernacle, and the way that he, he accomplishes that here in Leviticus chapter 15 is by talking about these bodily discharges as being unclean so that they won't happen in the tabernacle in some sort of attempt at, you know, again, that pagan spirituality, but rather they would remain in the place where God has given them in the marriage bed between a husband and a wife. Well, exactly. And we think, oh, well, why would people want to do this in the tabernacle? Why would they want to imitate the religions around them? And it's like, well, we do the same thing today. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, I watched the movie Patton, Patton, you know, General Patton, and there was a movie after him. And um, and I remember I then read a couple of biographies. And uh, in the biographies, Patton on makes if you got the books. I should, I should, you know, put those books up there. You know, I'll just put the movies up there. You know, just put the the DVDs up there of all my movies. That'll be what it is. Every other guy's like Luther's works, or oh, he has all the Concordia commentaries. No, Chris has um all of the Harry, you know, all the all the movies. So that's all. So sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, that's okay. It wasn't that deep of thought, anyways. No, nah, no, nah, I never make any points. Um, I can't even remember. No, and, and in it, uh, Patton makes this point of how I'd love to read the Quran. And how beautiful it was. And I was a high schooler. I wasn't, I was in, I hadn't gone to Christ Academy at Fort Wayne yet and been made a militant theologian yet. Um, so not that that's all they make there, but you know, it's good stuff. And um, I remember going to the library and getting a Quran and reading it. And then I started applying some of it to my life, not like the jihad and stuff or like chopping hands off, but like things about fasting and other things. And, um, those aren't helpful. Even if they sound pious, it's not beneficial for you because it's not given by God. So we always have to be careful and watchful for any influence that could infect, right? Jesus says, you know, uh, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And uh, Paul, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So as we see here with the discharges, whatever you apply from the world is going to eventually corrupt the entire body. Right. And God God wants his holiness for your entire life. And the only way that you can have God's holiness is if he gives it to you. And that's been a huge theme throughout the book of Leviticus, is that all man-made attempts at holiness or purity 
will ultimately fail. The only way that you can have holiness and purity is if God gives it to you. And so he gives these instructions, and though they may seem strange to us in our day and age, that is the purpose for them. And and still today, even though the instructions themselves may not apply, that need to receive holiness from God rather than to come up with it ourselves, that continues to be our absolute need. We can only have holiness if God gives it to us, and never if we try to accomplish it on our own. Well, exactly. It's when you look at trying to gain holiness on your own, you're just going to get the Pharisee. Thank you, God, I'm not like these people. Thank you, God, I'm not this. And then you make up your own laws. So holiness, righteousness, being just only comes from Christ alone. It is not something you obtain on your own. It is only something you receive. And and that's you, you're going to get that more as you go through Leviticus, more especially with things like the Day of Atonement and stuff like that. You'll get this reality of holiness is given by God. He's the one that calls a thing what it is, not us. Hmm. All right, so with that context in mind, let's go ahead and take a look at this text from Leviticus chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge, or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge sits on someone who is unclean or who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches, without having rinsed his hands in water, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, Then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water, and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge." If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. 
And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, he, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man, man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, she shall be unclean seven days, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use for one shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge. And for him who has an emission of semen, becoming unclean thereby, also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. That is our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 15, verses 1 to 33. Pastor Hull, give us the, the big picture view of this chapter. Lots of details, but, but kind of give us the, the bird's eye view of, of what's going on here. Well, I mean, it's... Yet again, like we talked about already, it's God cares about how our body is used. He cares about how it is given. One of the, I love, and we'll get into this as we keep talking, the reality of touching someone who does this makes you unclean as well. Not just the man who's doing this, but the one that he touches, the one he comes in contact with, or the one the woman comes in contact with is unclean. And that that gives even more depth to when Jesus heals the woman with the discharge of blood. Sure. So a lot of this is one point of how Christ will deal with uncleannesses. But it also deals here with how God does not desire his people to walk in an unclean life. And it's very detailed. There's not much left out here. It's not like God just says, okay, if you have a discharge of semen, you're unclean. And if a woman bleeds for seven days, she's unclean. So it's only two verses and then you move on. This is an entire chapter of God speaking to Moses and saying, this is an important thing to focus on, meditate on. And as we start walking through these verses, it's going to show it's not that God's trying to leave the right word. It, it, it's not that God is like some goody two-shoes or something and doesn't allow us to, to use our bodies as given, but 
he doesn't desire us to use them outside of how they've been given. Right, right. Yeah, and I think I think that's the one of the keys to this chapter, is that God puts the gift of sexuality into the proper place that he gave it, right? right. And, and it, even the Dr. Kleining in his commentary puts the structure of this chapter into a, a bit of a chiasm where it works from the outside in. So on the, the, outer ha- the outer parts of this chapter, it starts with the matter of an unnatural genital discharge for a man, and it ends with an unnatural genital discharge for a woman. Mm-hmm. And then as you move closer in, then you have the natural genital discharge for a man and the natural genital discharge for a woman. And then right in the middle of all that, what's in the center of the chapter, is the matter of, of intercourse between a husband and a wife. To, and I think that seeing that structure helps us, again, to keep in mind what God is really up to here. As you said, he's, he's not trying to be some kind of goody-two-shoes or, or make the teenagers giggle, but rather he's, he's putting human sexuality into its proper place, the relationship between a husband and a wife for the purposes of creating children, and not in other places, again, as we've already said, in terms of the way like pagans would have used it, or in other unclean, other, other ways that he did not intend that human sexuality to be used. Well, exactly. And what's interesting, and we'll get to this when we do verses 16 through 18, is even sex within marriage is not some carnal, animalistic-type thing. It's, it's an expression, yes, of love, but it's also the intimacy of the one flesh union that God has brought together and how God is involved in that. So I'm looking forward to talking with that as we get to those verses. But that, that's the beautiful part is that's not left out in this passage. It's not like it's just you using your body in a bad way. It's even how is your body used within the marital union? And God cares about that. And even because of the fall, there's still some level of corruption there. Um, if I'm not, not going too far by saying that. No, I, I don't. I don't think so. And I, I think one of the things that we—it's important for us to recognize in this chapter—is is not that the Lord is saying that sexual intercourse between a husband and wife is bad or or unclean in the sense that it's something to be avoided, but rather he again he puts it in its its proper place, and it and the proper place is not in the tabernacle, not in some way to attempt to manipulate him as the pagans would have not in some way to try to find some sort of spiritual power from that intercourse, but rather he, he keeps it where he intends it, in that relationship between husband and wife. And, and yes, in, the, you know, in this fallen world, after Genesis chapter 3, then of course the, the matter of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is one of the places where there is great corruption in sin, and we certainly see that. But God here is, is, I think, keeping it in its proper place so that a husband and a wife can experience the true joy in using that gift as God has intended it. Right. Well, what's interesting with those verses, how they're different than the others, is after a man and a wife sleep together, they don't have to then go make sacrifices to make atonement right. for what they've done. That's not—there's a bathing and a waiting until evening. And this isn't even—this is good to—, to Emphasize as well is, and this is where it gets fun talking to teenagers and even even to your adult Bible study. Um, having sex with your spouse, your husband or your wife, isn't just something you kind of do flippantly. It's not just something that comes and goes. It's something that 
is a big event. <laughs> it's a it's a big deal. And, and and that's the thing is you you don't take it lightly. You know, it's not just like something you do and then go, okay, I'll see you later today. Um, right. It's, I mean, even when you you think back to early years of marriage, there was a lot more just spending time with each other in these things. And then as the years go on, you do, maybe don't have that as much. But I don't know if that's reading too much into this understanding of bathing themselves and then being unclean until evening is when you have this act together as husband and wife, don't just run back into your daily activities. Stop because something huge has happened here. Something momentous has happened here. And it kind of pauses everything else in life. Yeah. There, there is a, there's a purposefulness, I think, to that. And again, with that being in the center of the chapter, that particularly being verse 18, there is a, a very much a purposefulness to the sexual intercourse between the husband and a wife that I think stands behind this chapter. And even, I mean, as you're talking about that, it reminds me of the, the way that the pastoral address in the service of holy matrimony Mm-hmm. in the Lutheran service book, speaks about the union of a husband and a wife. And I think at least one of the parts that applies is where the, the pastor would say, marriage was also ordained so that man and woman may find delight in one another. Therefore, all persons who marry shall take a spouse in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. And I think you see a very New Testament way of speaking there that has the same thoughts behind it as what's here in Leviticus 15. Oh, very much so. And and what's so interesting, I always remember, um, I can't remember which father in the faith I was talking to about it, but he would make a point even, and this is, I think to us sounds silly, uh, he would encourage husband and wife to pray before and after sex Mm -hmm. and um, praying that God would keep them holy as they they have this intimacy together, and then giving thanks to God afterwards. And everyone's like, that's just ridiculous. That's silly. And it's like, well, I think it sounds silly because we've made prayer such—well, prayer isn't even something that's that big of our daily routine. We pray before the meal. Not many of us pray after the meal. You know, that's probably a very small group who does. Um, Maybe pray the morning and evening prayers, but we're not praying that often. And we don't attach prayer to everything that we do. Uh, you have that hymn, with the Lord begin your task. And mm-hmm. that reality of any task you have begins with prayer, yeah. including sexual intimacy with your your wife or your husband. And maybe that's something we have to reclaim back. Um, as that pastor or that uh, professor was telling me this, he's like, this was a couple that was saying they do this, and everyone in the church thought they were just the weirdest people ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's because we've, We've made prayer such a a business thing, something I do on Sunday or something I tell people I'm going to do for them, you know, but not something that is really my just daily routine. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think, again, to, to emphasize this point, that within this chapter, then, God is not saying sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is a bad thing, so that we would right. you know, go, go entirely the wrong way and think that this is somehow, you know, it's it's somehow holier to abstain or to, to remain single or to remain unmarried. That's not the point. The, the point is God, again, gives that purposefulness to sexual in- intimacy between a husband and a wife so that it can be received with joy in prayer, in thanksgiving to God, 
rather than using it in any number of ways that would be apart from the purposes for which God intended it, and then would, again, take away the holiness that he would desire to give us, and, and would lead us into all kinds of, of just misery and sorrow. Exactly. This is not saying sex and marriage is bad. What it's really saying is sex and marriage is a heavy, heavy thing, a huge event, something that shouldn't be, you know, something you, you know, lightly think of. And, and even think of it this way, what can be one of the fruits of that intimacy are children right. and what comes with that, the blessings and the responsibility there. So, yeah. Right. Right, right. And again, that is not that that doesn't belong in the tabernacle. This is not the way right. that God is going to give you holiness, which again stands in distinction to the way pagan religions would have engaged in what's I mean, maybe you've heard your pastor talk about this temple prostitution. With this chapter, the Lord just gets rid of that thought from his people's minds. Right. And think, well, this wouldn't have been in the people's minds, you know, but remember your gen was it Genesis thirty eight or thirty six? With Judah and Tamar. I think it's Judah 38, I think. 38. So this was something the people of God knew about. Because when Judah comes back in town, he goes, where's the temple prostitute? And they go, we don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> so this would have been a reality for them. It, it's not as much something we see anymore. But when you think of it, really, the religion of the world, the religion of politics and the religions around us, uh, sex is everything. Look at gender how you identify yourself, um, pride that you have in either being gay or straight or something like that. These are all around us. How one identifies themselves is completely tied with sexuality. And what God's doing is removing that, saying, no, that is not your defining thing. My voice, my word is what defines you, not these acts. Right. And, and within the way that he speaks that in this chapter— you are very clearly a man or a woman who has whatever, I mean, you know, the again, there's the abnormal discharges, there's the normal discharges within that that context, but it is, it's defined then based on what he has said, and again, so that we would receive holiness from him and not from something else. So that I think that lays a pretty good foundation for this chapter. We can, we can talk more about some of the details within the various situations, but we'll do more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Chris Hull this morning about Leviticus chapter 15. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, September 13th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 15, verses 1 to 33 with Pastor Chris Hull. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, prior to the break, we were laying out the foundation for this chapter, that God gives the gift of human sexuality for a purpose, and he intends it to be used within that purpose, in distinction from what pagan religions would have done. And so by declaring the things unclean that he does here, he prevents his people from engaging in temple prostitution and other misuses of human sexuality, all the while upholding his good gift. So with that in mind, again, as I I mentioned, the way this chapter is organized, it seems to be that on the outside you have abnormal discharges, first for a man, then at the end for the woman— the next one in between are the normal discharges, and again, right in the middle is is the act of sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. So let's kind of take those one at a time. With the, the matter of abnormal discharges from the male, what are some of the things that we should see in this first part of the chapter, Leviticus 15? When you look at the abnormal discharges, it's it, it, God starts covering all the different avenues but that basically it affects everything around them um it's not a, a simple little thing but you see it affecting if he lies down it makes it unclean anyone who touches his bed is unclean anyone who sits uh, by him shall be unclean he sits on someone who's clean they're unclean um the one with a discharge spits on someone who is clean then that person is unclean so it, it just kind of goes everywhere it's this explosion of uncleanness. So it's not something that can be hidden. It's something that ends up becoming very publicly known. It's like uh, in the old days when you hang out your laundry to dry, you know? Uh, Nowadays, everything's hidden in secret. But with this, it's all publicly known amongst the assembly. Hence, why you need the sacrifices as well, to show that this person has become clean. Right. So, okay, with the with the abnormal discharge from the man, there is the the more public nature of it, as you said, and it's it, it's worth noting, as you already pointed out, that this is the one that does require the actual sacrifice. It's a a longer period of of time in which the person is unclean. This seven days, and then on the eighth day, the the cleanliness comes through the sacrifice. So there is a a level of of seriousness to this one. That is, again, not as evident when it comes to the, the normal discharge that's described next. But yeah, the, the public nature of it, I think, is there is something to that, that others would have known about this. It's not, you know, I think it's also, you know, when you look at the things that are declared unclean by touch, it's not necessarily absolutely everything that this man touches, but, but rather those things particularly associated with the discharge and, and where that comes from. So that you know, it's it's not again just God sort of totally banishing this person, but it's a it's a very serious nature here, and something that's going to prevent the man from being a part of the life of the tabernacle. That right. the Lord wants him to be able to participate in the proper state, and so He provides for these these things. Exactly, everything is about restoring. Remember when Jesus cleanses the ten um, leprous men. Uh, what does he tell him to do? Go show yourself to the priest so you can be restored back to daily living. So all of these things is so that everyone can be restored. Because when, when people see the abnormal discharges, um, they, they start freaking out. They uh, That's why you shatter the earthenware, you know, get rid of it so the infection doesn't spread. 
the fact that God has them perform sacrifices isn't a form of punishment. It's a form of mercy right. to show everybody this is one that God has reckoned to be holy and one you should consider holy and clean as well. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's also, I think, worth noting, at least in part, that the sacrifices for the first the first abnormal discharge, those happen on the eighth day. And we've seen the yeah. eighth day show up a couple places in Leviticus already, where there's this period of, of a week of some sort of quarantine, usually, that ends with a washing. And then on the eighth day, the sacrifices are, are given, and you're restored to the community fully. I, it's not an accident, I think, that we see the eighth day happen a couple times in this book. No. No, it's not an accident at all. And then if you, you can even make the connection with Christ rising on the eighth day and this reality, um, eighth day with circumcision, um, eight people in the, the Noah's Ark and all this, this reality of eighth, eighth day is restoration, renewal. And you see that here. And the priest, and that, that's the fun part about the, the sacrifices with the tabernacle, they weren't um, hidden little secret things either. This is a big fire out front where everyone can see. Um, so it's all about restoring the person to their relationship to God and their neighbor, a holy life. Right, and I think that's that's a, a good point, that just as the, the matter of this man being unclean would have been a matter of public knowledge— so now is his is his he is clean and that is declared publicly, not only for his sake but for the sake of the the whole people of God here, right? And that's that's the key thing too. And we we miss this in our our time in church. Um, our sins are very private matters, um, unless they're made public. And what happens when they're made public? It's almost like they're unforgivable, you know, um, de depending on how public it gets. But when you look at the privacy of our sins. It's because we don't trust people to actually forgive us and move on. Well, it was the same in the time of Leviticus, too. People had a struggle with just forgiving and moving on. Hence why the sacrifices are such a public um, event is it doesn't matter if you want to move on. God's already said you have to. And if God has said it, then you do it. So that's the beautiful part of this public absolution, this public restoration um, of the man who's had an unclean discharge or a um, abnormal discharge. Yeah, yeah, and it's, just to make the well, uh, one one point to to clarify a, a little bit at least, this is not necessarily a sinful thing that's happening in this case, as no. opposed to the the sacrifices that would have been made for sins that were detailed earlier in Leviticus. But he is unclean, and so that that impurity which prevents him from being a part of the life of the tabernacle now has been removed. And this is where I think your point is, is fantastic, is that this then becomes an opportunity for joy for the entire congregation of Israel, not just for this man, but for all of the, the people of Israel, so that he can be received back with joy, uh, not right. in a, a matter of shame, but hey, we're, we're all together again participating in the life of the tabernacle. Exactly, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up the sin and unclean, and the problem is we always like fuse those two in our time. Right. You know, like uh, we take uh, the offertory, created me a clean heart, O God. Well, uh, David also talked about sin there. So sin equals uncleanness. Well, yeah, most of the time it does. When we sin, we are unclean. But what we have to, to make sure of is that when we look at the uncleanness of our life, every sin, every uncleanness we have is, is a result of unbelief. 
uh, springs from that original sin. And we cleanse each other. We restore each other. No matter what the uncleanness, the weakness may be, we are restored just as these people are in Leviticus 15. Right. Now, so the, the abnormal discharge for the man goes all the way through verse 15. And then the, the normal discharge for the man is verses 16 and 17. A man has an emission of semen. And I, I think probably this is what we would, something like a, a wet dream or something like that for, for a man yeah. is what's being described here in verses 16 and 17, an emission of semen. But it sounds like it's apart from sexual intercourse. Exactly. And, and that's the thing is it's um, the man doing something that he's not forcing to be done, but it just happens. So it's like, okay, this is then you you have the cleaning that is done, cleaning of the garments and all this stuff. Um, and and realizing it's it's not something that we should shame others with, but instead realize it's something that has to be cleaned up. What's well, like when if your kid uh, spills milk, you don't sit there and scream at him for 20 minutes, you know, you just start cleaning the milk up. And, and that's the reality is when these things happen, you clean. If we could just see each other as unclean ones that need to be cleaned, we probably wouldn't argue as much or get as upset with each other. Is I'm not shocked that you're dirty. I'm not shocked that you've done something uh, that is not in accordance with God's holiness. So let's clean it up then. Like if I, I break glass in the kitchen, I don't sit there and lecture my children for 20 minutes about it. I pick them up, get them away from the dangerous glass, and I clean up the mess. And this is what God's saying here is, don't don't argue about it. Just realize it's got to be cleaned up and keep everyone away for a little bit to make sure they don't get unclean either. Right, right. And again, this is keeping human sexuality in the proper place. This is not something that's going to be done in the tabernacle as a way to engage in holiness and receive that from God. Rather, it belongs elsewhere, and so the Lord keeps that there. Now then, right. again, the, the center of the chapter is simply verse 18, which speaks about the normal sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. And we've talked already about this. This is the central part. God keeps it in its place, not in the tabernacle. And and He, he this is a good thing, but it doesn't belong in the area where God would give us His holiness. It belongs in that marital relationship. Correct. And that's the thing. We've talked about it already. And it then just brings everything else to make sense is sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is for the marriage bed. It's not for anywhere else. Uh, that's also why we're opposed to pornography and things like that. This isn't for entertainment. This isn't for excitement. This is for intimacy. So right. it covers a whole slew of issues. Right. That's right. So, so and again, as, as you pointed out, the fact that they then bathe themselves in water, they're unclean till the evening— that makes this a very purposeful act. And I mean, in a, in a certain sense, it even it, it encourages it as a purposeful act. Now, mm -hmm. as, as we'll see in the next section, there is a time during the woman's menstrual, the menstrual period when that act is not to be engaged in. But for the rest of the month, it is an act that is encouraged, again, in its proper place, in the, the place where God has given it to be. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. And it, you you have joy in that then. It's not something that's just done on a whim. It's it's something that's intentional. Um, and God gives that time, the seven days, where it's like, well, this is the time not to. This is a time for there to be a fasting from it. So, and God intends that. Right, right. Now, again, so then that's the the pivot of the chapter is there in verse 18, the, the regular 
God-given sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife in its proper place. And then you move you move outward now on the side of the woman, first with the normal discharge for a woman, which is her menstrual period. That's described in verses 19 to 24. This is one of those places in, in this section of Leviticus where sometimes people do get the, the misunderstanding that we've already talked about, that something that is unclean, we shouldn't equate it with necessarily being sinful. So the fact that, that the woman is unclean for seven days out of a month does not mean that she is somehow more sinful. This is simply, again, God regulating his people's sexuality so that they can receive his holiness in the ways that he prescribes it to be received and not in right. improper ways. Right. It's so interesting when you and I get to this, we're both men, right? And uh, the world would say, you and I have no right to talk about these these matters. Um, and and why the church usually buys into that is we've allowed the world to talk about this. Hmm. And the world has started defining it. And um, when you look at a, a woman having her period, this is this is not a sinful thing. It's not something, I mean, young girls, when they have their first period, uh, there's a, a shame that comes about it even. And there's no need to feel shame in this. This is God making you into a woman. And when you have these, this is you are in the years in which you can bear children. So it's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to hide. Um, but we've made it that. And men even make jokes about it, right? Like men are like, well, I won't go down that aisle at the store or, oh, my wife's on her period. I have to go. This is when I go hunting for a week every month, you know? Um, all these types of things, we, we, we mock it. And here it's not something to be mocked. It's something to be cleansed. Yes, but it's something that it happens. So maybe that's the, and trying to discuss that in church is almost impossible because we've made it a very private matter and we've made it a very worldly matter. Planned Parenthood talks about it more than you and I do, or maybe not you and I, but most pastors. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I think, you know, again, when you read this section of Scripture carefully, you'll see that there's really not a difference in terms of the way that God talks about the man who has a natural discharge and the woman who has a natural discharge. Yes, the, the woman's is, is longer, it's seven days, but it's not, it's not treated any differently in terms of the way that it affects the life. And even, you know, when you look at the things that are that become unclean based on certain kinds of touch, it's not everything. This, what's described here in these verses, does not prevent the woman from going about her normal routine of, of working in the household, of taking care of children, of, of any of the things that, that the woman would have done among the people of Israel. She is able to do those things. It's only certain things that the menstrual blood would have come into contact with that are declared unclean for a short time. But again, yeah. it's, again, God is not playing favorites here with men or women. He's actually treating them the same within the gifts of sexuality that he's given specifically to each sex. Well, and that's why these would be great verses to use, you know? Um, maybe when you teach on the Sixth Commandment to your confirmation class, um, or, or even just talking about uh, in Bible study, is God does care about these things. And he cares that as we go through these, that we continue to treat each other as children of God, fellow ones who are called into his holiness. So that's why he mentions these. They're not mentioned for male dominance, because that's always something, right? Is, well, the man is just, you know, one thing, the woman, it's seven days, all these things. Well, no, it's that God's saying both of these things happen. 
And what I'm telling y'all is this is how you act when it does happen. Right. And, right. And the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then, and the reason that these things happen is again, to go back to the center of the chapter for the purpose of the marital union between a husband and wife in which they find delight in each other in the marriage bed, which then produces right. the gift of children. You know, I mean, and so keeping those things in there, God designed these things to work in that way for those purposes. He wants us to keep them for those purposes and to keep us from taking them outside of those boundaries that he set for our own good. And right. so again, yeah, they're, they're different between what happens with a man and what happens with a woman in terms of their part in the, the procreative act, but they're both given by God for that good purpose, and we should never lose that. Exactly. So, I mean, that's why verse 18 is the, it's the, um, it, it helps you to interpret the rest of the chapter. Yeah. And that's, like you said, in Kleinig, it's so beautiful the way he develops that. That's right. So then the chapter ends, or this, this part about particularly the, the emissions, the discharges, ends with, as we started, with the abnormal discharges from a man, so now we end with the abnormal discharges from a woman. And, and that's described, again, very similarly to what happened with the man in terms of, at the end of this time, there's this period of seven days, on the eighth day sacrifices, but this is where there's some New Testament connections particularly, because Jesus encounters a woman with a discharge of blood, and this has been happening for her for 12 years. And this, I think, allows us then to talk more about the fulfillment of this chapter in Christ. So given what is said there in verses 25 to 30, help us make those connections. When we look at this, it's beautiful because the abnormal... The normal ones, it seems like people were able to be to get over a little bit. Not over, but understand, okay, these things happen. But these abnormal discharges, there would have been a you almost out of bounds way for this woman. She would be seen as one cursed by God, not loved by God. If God loved you, if he desired you to be holy, you wouldn't have this happening. And anyone who comes near you is unclean. But then what does Jesus do? He, he, she touches his garment <laughs> and it, 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 you know, he feels something come out of him. And what is that? It's his holiness, his righteousness. And what comes in him? Her uncleannesses. And it's the same for, for all who are unclean because of that which is abnormal, that which isn't um, in the normal ways of God. So when we look at these verses 25 through 30, yet again, having the public restoration in the sacrifices, even look how Jesus was with people. He would publicly restore them when they were made clean. He'd always say, go show yourselves to the priest, or he would show them in front of people. So it's a beautiful thing that we see here in this blessed exchange, our uncleanness becoming Christ's, his righteousness and his holiness becoming ours. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in the case with the woman with the, the discharge of blood in the New Testament, you have that public declaration from Jesus. She's, she comes and, and touches him secretly, and, and Jesus knows. When, and of course, it, it's, that's one of those funny scenes where, where Jesus says, someone touched me, and the disciples are, you know, look at him like, well, Jesus, everybody's touching you. But, yeah. but he, knows, he knows what's happened. And I, I think this is, I mean, what we've talked about here is a helpful explanation to that. Why does Jesus bring her forward? Why not let her remain in anonymity? 
it is for the sake of restoring her to the people of God, so that that joy can not only be hers, but can belong to the whole congregation, that yes, this woman now has been made clean and is fully restored to the life of the people. So even in the, you know, what might seem to us, oh, he's embarrassing her, is actually that further act of public restoration for her. Well, exactly. And, and, and that's what you need, is you need public restoration. It can't just be um, uh, a, a private little thing, because then people will con- consider her unclean still. She's going, no, 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 I'm this. No, no, no. We haven't heard that. We haven't seen that news. It's like if you're accused of murder, and then they come to find out you're not a murderer. They don't just let you out of jail and let you go about your business. There's announcements about it. There's news news channels that talk about it. And everyone learns about it. And it's announced so that people then know, okay, this is this was a false accusation there. Now, the reality of being unclean is now you've been restored. You are clean. And you're not going to walk around showing everybody all the time. You know, you're not going around going, oh, look at the blood. It's gone. It's that declaration that has to happen. And Christ made that for the woman, and he still makes it for us, too. And that public declaration for us is in holy absolution. Um, And it's sad that we've made it such a private thing nowadays, absolution. And it's because, and and this is the the kicker, maybe I'm too judgmental when I say this, is um, we don't value the absolution as much as we should. It's not that we don't value or see sin as bad as it is. I think everyone has a fun time with that. But it's that absolution is, hey, this person is clean. There's no uncleanness anymore. There's no dirt anymore. There's nothing anymore. This person is completely restored and perfect. And that's how the Father sees them. And then we struggle with that, hence why the public declaration. Yeah, I mean, the the shame that we feel is in the sin, but the absolution should take away that shame. That's what the absolution is given for. And so, yes, there's, you know, there is shame in the sin, but to go to the place where God gives the cleansing, that takes away the shame. And that right. that is the beauty of the absolution, then, is that the shame that I feel in going to the pastor to confess this is now taken away so that the people of God can rejoice together. I am forgiven along with you. We are together forgiven. Our shame is gone in this holy Christian church. Exactly. And that's what we announce to each other. That's why you have this uh, restoration that still takes place today. You have absolution proclaimed. And we encourage one another, exhort one another, and build one another up in that reality that, yes, in receiving the gospel, our hearts are made clean. Thanks yeah. be to God for that. Thanks be to God for that. And and then at the end of this chapter, in verse 31, which... At, the way I read verse 31, it sounds like a really a conclusion, not only to chapter 15, but to this entire section that began in chapter 11, where God speaks about what is clean, what is unclean. You, you really see the seriousness of, of these chapters and why God went to the trouble of giving them. It's because it's a matter of, of life and death. The oh, Lord yeah. doesn't want his people to die in uncleanness by approaching his holiness as unclean. Rather, he wants them to live being clean and receiving his holiness as gift. Well, and that's the thing is we have to take that seriously. Take nowadays, we don't really take the house of the Lord that seriously anymore <laughs> in this manner. Uh, you know, well, who was it? It was uh, Nadab and Abi who, right, came in with the unconsecrated fire. And um, when we look at 
church today, and this isn't a question of how you dress, like, oh, you wear a suit and tie. No, it's a question of, do you know what's going on here? What this place is about. It's not about you bringing something to God. It's about God coming to you and forgiving you. Do you see that? Do you recognize that? That that's what this house is for? Um, and then it flows from there. And God keeps you away from that uncleanness. He separates you from that, from that sin, so that you may live a life of joy. And once we get why we're in the presence of the Lord down, then everything else kind of falls into place. Yeah, that's right. Pastor Hull, we've got about two minutes left on the morning. I was thinking about the matters of clean and unclean, not only from Leviticus 15, but from this whole section again. Help us to see Christ in these chapters. Give us the, the good news from this part of Leviticus. Well, the good news is Christ has taken everything unclean in you, everything where you, you want to grab the bar of soap, the, the, the Brillo pad and scrub it away, and you keep scrubbing, 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 and, and nothing ever seems to go away. The devil comes and says, you're still dirty. The world says, I still see some spots and blemishes. Christ comes and takes it all. He takes all the uncleanness. He takes everything from you, everything that would cause you to be an outcast in society. He takes it, and not only takes it, he doesn't throw it away, he makes it his own. And then on the cross is hung there as the unclean one, the one who has every spot, every blemish, every discharge there is Christ. So that now he may distribute to you nothing but his blessing, nothing but his love, nothing but his forgiveness, nothing but his holiness that presents you unblemished, spotless before his Father. And just as God wanted to keep the uncleanness away from his people, so now does he do for you in Christ should you may be presented to the Father here in time and there in eternity, absolutely perfect. Pastor Chris Hull is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 15, verses 1 to 33. Pastor Hull, thanks for being our guest today. Brother Apple, always fun times. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus 15, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.